Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, and we're in a series of messages on the life of Christ through the gospel of Mark, and I'm going to be looking at um, the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. You'll find that on page 708 of your church Bibles, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, uh, please take this navy blue uh, Bible that's in the pouch in front of you and put your name in it and take it home. Uh, Those verses will also be on the screen uh, behind me. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up. He took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is God's word. Have you ever heard of plantar fasciitis? Well, you're looking at him. I've got a case of it, and wow, it's been driving me crazy since Thursday night. Plantar fasciitis, there's this thick band of tissue called the plantar fascia that runs across the bottom of your foot and connects your heel bone to your toes, and when it gets inflamed... It it, it feels like a red-hot knife sticking through your heel. And uh, you can prevent it by stretching, uh, which I had not. And you can prevent it by not walking on your hardwood floor barefooted, which I had. And um, heel gels help, as does a kind of a foot sleep support, that helps. Advil helps, too. Uh, And a wonderful wife helps, too. Sarah's been a great, great help. She's been a better nurse than I, a patient. And um, so it's ironic I'm in this condition as we're looking at these verses. That was supposed to be funny. I guess it's not. (laughs) So can I just move on? Can you imagine having plantar fasciitis in the first century, though? I mean, really. 
You know, in, in the days before heel gels or, you know, Advil, you're a Christian in the city of Rome, the capital city of Rome, and it's in the late 60s A.D., Nero is Caesar. He is persecuting your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some have died for Christ. Others have been attacked and persecuted and mauled at, and perhaps they come to the church gathering as survivors. And all you see are scars, scars from their persecution. And the church has gathered, not in a great room like this, but in a house church. In a house church, a gathering, and there are those who've been persecuted, and then there's are, there are those with other maladies, right? There's the plantar fasciitis people, and then there's the nearsighted people with no glasses. There's people with broken arms and legs that were never properly set. And there's people with cancer who couldn't even figure out why they're feeling that poorly. And then they hear the gospel of Mark and this section here that we just read in our chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I can't help but ask this question. What help is it to to tell someone who will never walk again a story about someone who walked again? What help is that? What is it about these verses that give hope to those who suffer? That give hope to those who are persecuted. Hope in the midst of hopelessness. What help is that? Well, that's what we're going to see today in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Now, remember in chapter 1, he had been to Capernaum. And he preached in the synagogue, gathering there on the Sabbath. And he had even expelled a demon uh, who interrupted him there in the synagogue gathering. And, and then after that, he went to uh, the Peter's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then after that, he even touched a leper. Put his hands on a leper and cleansed the leper. And in the end, he taught with authority and he healed many with authority, so much so that his, the popularity swelled and he had to go to the outer distant places to the wilderness area and people came out to him. And somehow he's back in town. He's back at, at, at a house. And it's probably Peter's house, probably And it's probably not a very big house. How big? Eh. 400 to 800 square feet, you know? Uh, We know that it wouldn't be any wider than 15 or 16 feet because it wouldn't be any wider than the beams that supported the roof. Those roofs were flat back then, and they'd lay these beams of these tree trunks next to each other, and then then crossways they'd put on some other branches, and then they'd, they'd add about two feet of mud and thatch and flatten that roof and you could even sleep on the roof or you could you know dry food out on the roof and or catch a breeze out on the roof and the stairs would be outside the house that's how it worked back then but inside this little house it was packed with a crowd sitting on the floor spilling out the door a crowd whose eyes were fixed on him jesus he was there in the crowd preaching the word the crowd. There's that word, crowd, in verse 4. 
Do you know the word crowd shows up about 38 times in Mark's gospel? Just that word, crowd, that's significant. 38 times. What do we learn about the crowd in its continual appearances in Mark's gospel? Well, several things. First, we learn that in Mark's gospel, uh, the crowd consists of commoners and sinners and outcasts. In Mark's gospel, the crowds, uh, they were alienated from the religious leaders. And so it would be the crowd versus the scribes and Pharisees. Kind of a class system there. We learn that the crowds are Christ's audience. They're listening. They're hearing. And we also learn from Mark's gospel that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He had compassion on them. But the crowds are not entirely innocent. You see, nowhere in Mark's gospel do we read of crowds who repent. And nowhere in Mark's gospel do we read of crowds who, as a crowd, follow Christ. In Mark's gospel, crowds are mostly passive. They're either, they're either ambivalent toward Christ or they're hostile to Christ. Uh, they're fickle. But here's what we learn most, and this is fascinating. 38 times the word crowd shows up in Mark's gospel, and the most single common attribute of crowds in Mark's gospel are that they obstruct access to Jesus. Think about that. So being a part of a crowd doesn't necessarily make you a disciple of Christ. One's enthusiasm for Christ does not equate to faith in Christ, and therefore a crowd does not equal success in Mark's gospel. And yet here the crowds are, jam-packed into that house. And there is Jesus teaching, teaching, uh, well, Preaching the word, Mark tells us. What would be the content of that? Well, maybe parables that we would later hear in Mark's gospel. Maybe portions of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, uh, I wonder if Jesus taught the crowds what he taught the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Luke chapter 24, 27 says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to him what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus opened the Hebrew Bible and preached the word, but it was about himself. The coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark says he spoke with authority. He spoke with exousia, uh, out of the original source. It was powerful. It was wonderful. The crowd was with him. And that's when a piece of dirt fell on his head. And Jesus is not going to be distracted by a silly old piece of dirt. He keeps preaching away, and then the branch falls. And, and you know, the audience, they can just, they can, they're trying to stay focused, uh, but they can't. And, and then they, they suddenly see this hole in the roof that's forming. And all of a sudden, the, the, the ceiling opened up, the heavens parted, and, and the light poured in, and now this bed was lowered, and, and someone was in that bed. And then, then that someone landed, plopped down right in front of Jesus. One minute, he's preaching the word, and the next minute, he's staring at the face of this guy in this mat and then everybody looks up and they're looking at four grinning faces there through the whole roof four faces of four friends they saw friends 
friends whom the crowd had obstructed access to Jesus. Friends who had scampered up those stairs, up the roof, and started digging through. Friends who didn't bother to think what the owner of the house would think because they were thinking, we got to get him to Jesus. Who's going to fix the hole? Don't worry about it. What would the owner say? Don't worry about it. Will the roof hold us? Dig faster. Get him to Jesus. And they did. And then the Bible says Jesus saw this and was deeply impressed. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, that's very important, because that describes faith in Mark's gospel. Not Jesus heard their faith, Jesus saw their faith. Whatever you can say about faith in Mark's gospel, whatever you can say about how Jesus defines faith, you have to say this, faith is about active trust. It's not merely mental assent. It's about taking action. It's about taking a radical risk. The roof is going to hold or it's not going to hold. Jesus is going to help or he's not going to help. And notice another feature about faith here in that verse. Jesus saw their faith. Plural, their faith. That's something we need to remember in our Western individualistic culture, you know. We tend to applaud the heroism of the individualistic kind of faith, but the fact of the matter is there was a community kind of faith going on, a faith of these four friends uh, that, that, that resulted in radical trust, active trust. These four friends who loved their friend enough to get him to the one person they believed could help. Faith is something you see, Faith is in the context of community. And then there's this. This is what we learn. Faith does not flag in the face of obstacles. Faith will not wilt in the fire of trials. Faith doesn't quit before barriers. What happens to you when hard things in life show up? How do you respond when The life of faith gets difficult. Do you flag? Do you relapse? Do you revisit old habits? Do we question God's love? Later in the New Testament, we would read Peter's own words in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you see, the gospel is not just information that results in education. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. Resulting in transformation. A new day has dawned. A a day of active trust. And so everything I do now, I do because I'm actively trusting God. I, I, I do life as a pastor and a husband and a father. Why? Because I'm actively trusting God. That's why. Tomorrow morning, if I'm an educator, I go into the classroom and I'm teaching students. Why? Because I'm actively trusting God. That's why. Tomorrow or this afternoon, 
if I'm doing uh, my vocation as a healthcare provider. I do it because I'm actively trusting God. That's why. And I'm doing what I'm doing as an account executive or a construction worker or construction engineer or an athlete or a homemaker. Why? Because I'm actively trusting God. Faith is actively trusting God. And Jesus saw this. He saw their faith. And then he said, the most unexpected thing. I mean, Jesus saw their faith. We would have just expected him to then say, why, you know, your faith has made you whole. But he doesn't say that, does he? He saw their faith, and then he looked at the paralytic, and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd is going, come again? What? What? Your sins? Didn't, didn't know he'd come to get his sins forgiven. I mean, looks paralyzed to me. I mean, sins forgiven? What's that about? What is that about? Is Jesus saying that the reason why this man was paralyzed was sin in his life? Is, was that it? Was his, was his personal paralysis due to personal sin? You know what the answer to that question is? Maybe. 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 Sometimes no, Mary. I'll get to that one. Let me, we'll get to maybe first, okay? You see, the Hebrew people, they just identified sin and disease. And sometimes they would absolutize it like Job's friends. Like Job's friends. But maybe he was paralyzed. We don't know, the fact is. He may have done something earlier in his life that was unwise and unethical and unbiblical that resulted in his condition. We don't know. What kind of paralytic was he anyway? Was he kind? Was he soft? Was he tender? Was he bitter? Was he angry? Was he nasty and mean? Was he crusty? Was he greedy? Was he depressed? Could that have been in his past? The fact is, sometimes some people do suffer because of unwise, unethical, and unbiblical life choices. Sometimes, but not always. Not always. Now, I'm thinking of John chapter 9 in John's gospel, where uh, the disciples see a blind man and ask Jesus, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, definitely, no. No, neither but that the glory of God would be displayed in his life. So in other words, there may be a correspondence to personal sin and personal suffering, but there's no absolute correspondence. This much we do know. This much we can be sure of. This world is broken, and the gospel says that the reason why it's broken is because our spiritual ancestors in the Garden of Eden committed cosmic treason against God, and we have inherited their depravity, and that depravity has infiltrated every crevice of the universe, and it affects us personally, it affects us relationally, it does affect us physically, it affects governments and the environment, everything. So whether he was paralyzed because of specific sin or because he was born into a broken world stemming from the fall, this man still needed help. And what Jesus did here was he showed him the kind of help he needed most. See, just as they unroofed the roof to get to Jesus, Jesus now unroofs this man's life to reveal his deepest need. In declaring his sins forgiven, Jesus tells him and us that there's something more necessary than strong legs, and that is a forgiven soul. 
We need our sins blotted out. And I love this quote. Um, It's this quote right here. The goal of God's love may not be what you think it is. The goal of God's love may not be what you think it is. You see, you see, Jesus is saying, look, if you're just asking for your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You're not. If you just want your body healed, you have underestimated the depths of your longings. You've underestimated the longings of your heart. Well, of course, any who would be paralyzed, naturally, they want with every fiber of their, of their body to be able to walk again. And so this man would be resting you know, all of his hopes in the possibility of walking again. And in his heart, he would say, if I could only walk again, then I would be set for life. I would never be unhappy. I would never complain. If I can only walk, then everything could be all right. What's your if only? What's your if only? If only I could get that job... Or if only I would get that raise. Or if only I could get, you know, married to that person. Or if only I could get away from that person. If only. If only. And Jesus is saying, child, you are mistaken. And that may sound harsh, but it is true. Jesus says, you know, when I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll never... that's all I do, you feel like you'll never be unhappy again. But I'm telling you, in two months, <laughs> when the euphoria is gone, the roots of a discontented human heart run deep. That's what Jesus is saying. And, uh, you know, someone once said that when God wants to play a practical joke on someone, He gives that person what they want most. (laughs) And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not going to play that practical joke on you. I'm going to give you what you need most. And so to forgive your sins is to remove the one barrier that would otherwise keep you from God. Your sins are are forgiven and, and and it's written to sound like this as of right now your sins are forgiven well this did not sit well with the scribes <laughs> the teachers of the law the religious enemies the pastors did not sit well with them at all they heard this and mark's gospel says that they were uh, literally reasoning in their hearts that's what thinking to themselves Means reasoning in their heart. Who does he think he is? Why only God can forgive sins? What this is blasphemy. And what began as a benevolent healing now becomes a control issue. Because if Jesus can go about forgiving sins out of his own self, out of his own authority, out of his own exousia from the original source, if Jesus can go about forgiving sins, then what do you need scribes for? Furthermore, what do you need the temple in Jerusalem for? Because Jesus therefore becomes the meeting place between God and people. And that's exactly what he was doing here. Jesus was saying, you don't need the temple. I'm the temple. So Christ just wasn't setting this paralytic free. And furthermore, Jesus heard what they were thinking. I heard you think it. And he confronts them with this brilliant question in verse 9. Which is easier? Which, which is easy? All right, guys, which is easier? 
to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Which is easier? And the answer is, depends. (laughs) Depends. See, on the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how are you going to disprove that? Right? But if you say, rise up and walk, well, then something's got to happen. See? On the other hand, on the other hand, does anybody in the crowd have any clue what it's truly going to take in order for this man's sins and everybody else's sins to be forgiven? Someone, one without sin, must substitute himself for this man and all of us and die for us in our place and be treated like we would be treated if we were to pay for our sins. Someone has to go to the cross so that his and ours, our sins, would be blotted out. Someone has to, and Jesus is that someone. And so Jesus says in verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And the crowd who wouldn't part to let that guy in now parts like the Red Sea to let him go home. His legs came back. His relationship with God was restored. And his relationship with others. Oh, yes, think about it. Christ forgave him. and I mean, the possibilities are just phenomenal. And now this, this healed man, this healed, forgiven man, has received so much grace that now he can pass it on to others. I mean, Capernaum was a small town. Maybe this guy was paralyzed in an accident of no fault of his own. And, and the person who caused it was also in that crowd, you know, and now, well, Christ has healed this man, and now the relationships have all been restored. No wonder they say in verse 12, we've never seen anything like this. Healing and forgiveness do go together, don't they? And what I want you to walk away with as we look at these verses is just, I've just tried to summarize it in just single syllable words, and it's simply this. Come in faith to the grace that gives more. Come in faith to the grace that gives more. When we come to Christ in faith, when we display active trust, when we take that radical risk of faith and trust, then his grace gives more than we could ask for or imagine you come, you come to him with what pleases him most and Jesus will give you more than what you could ever dream of most. Come in faith to the grace that gives more. That's, that's the lesson here. That's what, that's what we're learning in these verses. Mark's gospel answers two questions. Who is Jesus and who am I? Well, we, we know who Jesus is. <laughs> He is the very grace of God. He's the Son of Man. Jesus is Exodus 15, 26 in the flesh. I am Yahweh, your healer. God has come in the flesh and a new day has dawned. And what happened to this healed, forgiven man is is what God's kingdom is looking like when 
It's fully established on earth, in the new heavens and the new earth with the new body. And, and the death and burial and resurrection of Christ is going to bring that about. Healing and forgiveness, they do go together. And they came in faith, they asked in trust, and Christ responded more than they could ever ask or imagine. Come in faith to the grace that gives more. That's who Jesus is. Second question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I in this story? Who are you? The scribes? Let's start with them. Boo, hiss. You know, what should have come out of their mouths was praise, but instead it was condemnation. Hmm. Question, how do you respond to God's grace in someone else's life? When God gives his grace to someone else, how do you respond to that? You know, are we more interested in being right or proper than being compassionate? Do I get miffed because God or others value people over my sense of propriety? (laughs) And what's with this insistence on proof? Prove it. What? You know, I shouldn't be too hard on the scribes because, well, I am one. Yeah. It wasn't the crowds that put Jesus on the cross. It was the clergy, the scribes, the Pharisees. And I'm a lot like a scribe sometimes because, I'm, because sometimes I'm skeptical of others' professions of faith. And like Pharisees, I like to see evidence so that I can give my verdict. <laughs> As if that matters? Who are you? Who are you in this? Some of you feel like the paralyzed man. What's the most paralyzed that you felt? What's holding you to your mat? It may be more than physical. You know, it might be your past. It might be your guilt. It might be your shame. It might be an unwise, unbiblical, unethical life choice that you just don't feel like you can escape. And you know what? You may have a physical problem which may or may not be cured in this life, but you will be cured in the next if you come to him in faith because his grace gives more. And here's the deal. This is so beautiful. This is so beautiful about the grace of Christ. Listen, I'll say this twice to make sure we get it. You don't need to know everything there is to know about why you need Jesus. You just need to come to him. I'll say it again. You don't need to know everything there is to know about why you need Jesus. You just need to come to him. You come to him and he'll figure it out. He'll sort it out, you see. And the glory of it all is that now this paralytic, he's been transformed and forever changed from someone who was carried on a mat to someone who can now carry the mats of others. Someone who can carry others to Jesus. Just bring people to Jesus, and Jesus will do the rest. And if you're here for the first time, let me just tell you, Windsor Road Christian Church is a congregation of former paralytics who've been forgiven by Christ, aren't we? And that leads me to these four friends, these great friends. These friends remind me of how missional we need to continue to be. 
Am I as determined as these to get someone I love into the presence of love himself? Hmm? Do we understand how they imitated Jesus by their active trust? I mean, the roofs opened like heaven, and they came through. Jesus came through. They broke through. Jesus broke through. Jesus broke through the wall that separated people from his heavenly father. And these guys broke through to get their friend to him. They did just what Jesus did. They have reenacted the incarnation. No wonder Jesus smiled. You know what? He still smiles at such friends today. Come in faith to the grace that gives more. And church family, Jesus is the grace that gives more.